Join a group. Join a group. Listen, if I'm in a mini church, you need to be in a mini church. Everybody needs a small group. It's tough to, it's tough to really grow in your faith when you just come to the big thing on Sunday and you don't get in to a group with, with Christians where you can do the one another's. You know how many one another's there are in the Bible? Pray for one another, carry one another's burdens, encourage one another. There's all these one another's that are not options, they're commands. Well, how am I gonna do those? I'm not gonna do those on Sunday. I can't do all those one another's. That's why we have small groups. And it really does strengthen your walk with God, your ability to handle all the stuff we gotta deal with Monday through Saturday. So um, think about it, really think about it, joining and trying a small group, a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, or couples in a mini church. Well, Judy and I, we just got back from uh, Europe on Wednesday. We were there to, to visit with some French church leaders. I uh, met with the president of the Alliance Churches in France, uh, President uh, Michel, Michael is his name. He's actually going to come and preach from this pulpit next year. But we're, we're, we're partnering with France. You know, our, our vision is, is to have a sister church relationship with a church on every continent. And we're in South America, in Lima, Africa, West Africa, and Burkina Faso. And now we're going to sign this agreement next year with France. And we're going to be in three cities with three different churches. We're going to be in Paris, we're going to be in Bordeaux, and a place called Toulouse, which I'm going to visit next year. But um, it was very productive. And of course, you heard last week, if you were here, uh, from the uh, pictures. Uh, in fact, we got that one picture. Of the, yeah, look at those guys. Those are three Italians. We actually, in Bordeaux, bought their restaurant. They got two restaurants. One of their restaurants, which is perfect location, right on the main drag where there's a tram. And the guy sitting down there, uh, I met him. I went into his second restaurant, and he comes up to me, he goes, uh, you parents from Italy? I go, yeah. He says, uh, Sicily? I go, yeah. He goes, Palermo? Yeah. Then we were fine. <laughs> no problem after that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it was just a great trip. That was our second time, actually, in the last six months in Europe because we were there four months ago. I had to speak to, and a bunch of our uh, staff, too, came with me. We had to uh, help uh, in a forum, they call it, a missionary forum, where we kind of minister to our missionaries that are in Spain. And while I was there, I think I had mentioned this guy to you before. I met a guy by the name of Gaspar there. He was one of our guides for Barcelona. Nice guy. And uh, Gaspar and I got into spiritual conversation at one point. And he was fascinated with my story. He said, he said, Dennis, I don't understand. Why would someone leave Wall Street, leave a business career to become a pastor? I don't know what he thought of being a pastor. <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't great. But he said, why would someone do that? He was fascinated with this. So I'm going to tell you why, what I told Gaspar. Why do I involve myself in ministry, in the church? Why do I serve in a church? And frankly, it should be the answer that you give to anybody who asks you, why do you volunteer? Why do you serve in this church? Why do you give to this church? Why are you a part of it? Your answer should be the same answer. We'll get back to that. The Apostle Paul 
actually lays the theological foundation for what I'm going to talk about in chapter 1 in his letter to the Galatians. And that's where we'll be today in the Bible. As we continue our series that we've been in called Step In. Today the theme is Step Into Serving in the Church. Serving in the Church. And let me give you some background on the background of this, of this letter to the Galatians. Uh, it's a letter that is slightly different than any of the other New Testament letters that Paul writes uh, because he re- usually writes to a church like in Corinth or the church in Philippi or the church in Rome. It's usually meant to be read in one, one city and, uh, and, and one main church. That's not the case here. This letter was meant to be read in a region. Galatia was a geographical region. So uh, when I go back to New Jersey to my Italian relatives there, and they say, where, where do you live again? I say, I live in Wisconsin. That's my home now. And they say, where? I say, well, Appleton. Where's Appleton? 25 miles south of Green Bay. And I tell them, listen, think of it this way. Appleton is, because they think there's five people who live here. I say, listen, it's not like New Jersey. It's Appleton is about 70,000 people. It's the anchor city, anchor city. And then around it are a whole bunch of other cities within a 20 mile radius. And it's called the Fox Cities. About 250,000 people, if you include everybody. Well, that's Galatia. Galatia was a region, a region in modern day Turkey. And notice the plural of church here in the opening verses. Galatians chapter one. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me, all the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches, plural, of Galatia. So this letter is meant to be read to many churches. Galatia was a large area, about 150 miles wide, about 250 miles north to south. And the apostle Paul, Uh, previously to this, along with uh, someone named Barnabas, Barnabas had gone and he had planted churches in four primary cities in Galatia, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, not to be, not to be uh, confused with Antioch of Syria, which is Paul's home church, it's a different Antioch. And so this letter, he's, he's, he's writing uh, because he, he's, he's going to visit them a second time. It's now with someone named Silas. It's recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14. We won't look at that. But while he's there, he almost loses his life. At one point, uh, people try and stone the apostle Paul. They take him out to a garbage heap at the, at the, on the outskirts of the city. They leave him there to die. And some of his disciples come and they rescue him. So the people of Galatia. They absolutely love Paul. Why? Well, because they realize that guy, he's risked everything to come and preach to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. They love him. They trust him. But then there's trouble. When Paul leaves, shortly after he leaves, a group of religious teachers, false teachers, they follow him, and they start to present to the people a different message, a different gospel, a false religion. And they're getting these Christians all upset, 
and questioning not only the credibility of the apostle Paul, but his message. So Paul has to sit down, he's got to write a letter, not only to defend his character against some very serious accusations, but he also has to remind these people of the true, real gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for the letter to the Galatian churches. And he begins by describing to them what a false gospel looks like. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul says is, listen, these other gospels, they're not good news. They're not good news. Galatians chapter one, verse six, let's take a look at it. I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news but it's not good news at all. The word uh, gospel, the English word gospel is an old English word. Uh, uh, gospel comes from God, good is the first part. Spell, which is more of a news or story it means. It's good news, good story. But Paul is saying, you're considering now abandoning what I told you, which was the good news about Jesus, for another gospel that's really not good news at all. Now, why does he say that? But because the people who are following Paul are called Judaizers. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to make the Gentile people that are hearing this message become Jews first. They want to Judaize them. They wanted them to become Jews first before they become followers of Jesus. So here was their message. Here was their message. Yes, you need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, you need to believe what he's done on the cross for you. But first, for you to really be saved, for you to really be a Christian, you need to first become a Jew. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey all these laws and regulations. And then you believe in Jesus. You see, the Jews had lots and lots of religious rules. They still do. You go to Israel today, a lot of rules and regulations. In fact, I remember the, the trip I'm going to lead next month. This is our seventh time. First time I went to Israel, I didn't know a lot of the, a lot of the rules. And so I went in a hotel. I got it on an elevator on Saturday. You know what it was? A Sabbath elevator. I didn't know what that was. Sabbath is, you know, it's a rule. You can't do any work. And they think that you can't even touch a button. So they have these elevators. Go Sabbath, they, they stop automatically every floor. I was on the 18th floor. <laughs> Took me a long time to get it. I grew up in a religious tradition. Some of you know. Lots of rules. I was taught, listen, I, I went to school as a kid. I was taught you don't go to church on Sunday. You go right to hell. I mean, you get an excuse if you're sick or you got to work. But other than that, if you just are lazy or you want to do something else, or you want to sleep late, you go right to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That was the rule. And so you grow up thinking, it's, you know, in order to get to God, I got to obey all the rules. I remember one time I was uh, on at church and uh, the priest got up and he, and, he, and he talked about hell. And I, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Seven minutes, that's all you get for a homily. And I'll never forget it. Father Koch, one of my favorite priests, he preached a great message on hell. I mean, just a tremendous description right from the Bible. And then I'm sitting there going, tell him now, tell him, Father, the good news. Tell him how they can escape hell. And you know what he said? You know how you escape hell? And I could look at the eyes because I'm on the platform of, of everybody. 
And uh, he said, you have to be a good Catholic. In other words, you got to obey the rules. And I looked into the eyes of the people and I could see despair, like, like almost saying, like, Father, come on. I mean, I'm already trying to do that and it ain't working. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is that your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It's not based on you obeying the rules. It's your relationship with God is based on Jesus obeying the rules. He lived a perfect life. He gets up on a cross and dies for all of your sins, the things you're so ashamed of, the things you're about to do or they're doing right now, the things you, you even thought of that you're going to do in the future that are so offensive to God that break his law. He takes all of them, puts them on his back, and he pays the penalty. You don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. You don't have to work off your sins. He does it, and what he's asking you to do is stop trying to obey the laws to get to God. Not that obeying the law is bad or doing good things is bad, but that's not how you're going to repair your relationship. Your relationship is repaired already, not because of what you do, but because of what has been done. And here's what he asks you to do. Let go of that religion. Let go of that, of that, that, that attempting to work your way to God through obeying the, the law and totally trust in what he's done and open your arms, apply it to yourself by faith. Folks, that's good news. Trust me, from someone who spent 24 years working my way, trying to do enough good things until I realize for the first time I see it in the Bible and my eyes are open. I'm saved by faith not by my works. So what Paul is saying is, what they're telling you, not good news. Obeying all the rules and regulations to get to God, not good news. Now question, why are these Galatian believers so susceptible to this? I mean, they, they loved Paul. Answer, because they're not mature. They're acting like baby Christians. They, they're what's called, you're saved and get stuck. You never grow. How are you going to grow? How are you going to mature so you can be protected against these kind of bad doctrines and bad teaching? You've got to grow in the knowledge of the book. Look up here. Never, ever be satisfied with your Bible knowledge. Never. You think Pastor Harris and I, we've been pastors almost 40 years. You think we don't study this book, continue to learn, continue to see the gold from it? No. We, 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 we constantly are learning. These people are not mature enough to spot a false gospel. Why? Because they're not mature. They're not fully developed in their understanding of God's word. And this was a problem throughout Paul's ministry. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because people are lazy. They come to church like this on Sunday, expect the pastor to do everything, feed them everything they need to know. No, you got to learn to self-feed. you got to learn to feed yourself and crack this book open during the week and spend some time. It doesn't have to be an hour, but spend some time reading it, letting God speak to you, studying it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at this. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I, as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world. 
as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready. Look what he says to the Christians that he writes in, to, to in Hebrews. There's much more we'd like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you're spiritually dull. You don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching other people. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know what to do, what's right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Jesus talked about this too in the gospels in John chapter 17. I'm not asking, he's praying for his disciples and he's saying to the father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy, how? By your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. How are you gonna be protected from all of these wacky teachings today? Not just for you, but for your family. Answer, become a person of the book, it protects you. These people are being lied to and they don't even know it. When Judy and I were in seminary, we were in the same New Testament Greek class, very romantic place to meet your wife. I really liked her, I did, I was so attracted to her. So I, I told my roommate, this is how we worked it, I told my roommate and he told her roommate and they set up a date for us to go to a major league baseball game. That's how I wanted to wow her. And uh, at the very last minute, she canceled, true story, she canceled. So I figured she wasn't interested, but her roommate kept telling my roommate, no, 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 she really likes you. This is just how women from Ohio roll. <laughs> so I asked Judy to have, I said, let's go out and have a cappuccino. And she looked at me kind of funny, but we went out to the coffee, went to the coffee shop and I knew why she looked at me funny because when she ordered, she said, I would like a cup of Chino. I'd explain to her, no, it's Irish girl from Ohio, it's a cappuccino. I was 27, she was 22, so I was older, much more mature. And, um, <laughs> yeah, you might go pay for that one later on. I said to her, look, I said, uh, sir, this is exactly what I said. I said, Judy, Judy, let's be honest with each other. I mean, you're walking around like you don't want to pursue a relationship with me. You're canceling dates on me. You're aloof. So tell me the truth. Are you interested? And then all of a sudden she smiles and she confesses, yes, she really wanted to pursue a relationship, but which she was just acting like she didn't, which actually means our marriage was built on a lie. <laughs> but it doesn't bother me for one thing. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, she liked me. And then another thing, I told her I would never tell anybody this story, which apparently now is a lie. So we're even. Listen to me. The one area of your life you do not want to be lied to is the way to heaven. Your eternity is on the line. Listen, folks, 
you live on this earth 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80 years, that's a blip on the screen of eternity. You want to make sure you nail that one. And so you want to make sure no one is selling you a false hope, a false gospel. This is serious stuff. The Galatians are being lied to and they don't even know it. It's not good news. But also, Paul says, this false religion stuff, it appears to be good. That's why it's so confusing. But it really perverts. It really just destroys the good news. Galatians chapter 1, verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And that word pervert in the Greek, New Testament was written in Greek, is metastropho. And metastropho means to reverse someone to actually go in the opposite direction. So it's almost like he's saying, you know, you were going in the right direction and now all of a sudden you guys are going backwards. That's how perverted this thing is. I just finished a six-part study in Revelation and without question, this will be a sign that we're headed toward the end times. There will be, a, there will be an increase of confusing and Christian-looking heresies that many people will get fooled by. Let me, let me read you just some scriptures on this. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by who? Demons. Where do all these false religions come from? Not from the people who teach them, but actually they're being taught by demons through people to deceive. Next verse, 2 Timothy. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desire, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Next verse, 2 Peter. But there will also be false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into dis- disrepute. In their greed, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And even Jesus, even Jesus in the gospel warns about this in Matthew chapter seven. Watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Folks, false teachers, listen, false teachers never hold up a sign and say, follow me, I'm gonna trick you. Listen to me, I'm not gonna teach you truth. They never do that. No, how do they come? In sheep's clothing. Paul says, these false teachers will be what? Among you. They're not going to be outsiders. They're going to appear to be Christian. I'm amazed at how many people are so naive when they're listening to preachers who are preaching absolute nonsense. They make Christianity to be some easy add-on, no sacrifice, makes you wealthy, gives you a joyful life all the time, no suffering. And they'll pack stadiums to listen to these people. That's why I tell people who go through our membership class here, listen to me. 
If you want to join this church, any church you join, it's not whether you like the pastor or not. It's not whether your kids like the kids' ministry. The, ma- the most important thing when you join a church is what does the statement of faith say? What do they believe? And do I believe this? Paul says the same thing to the Galatians. He's saying, I marvel, I'm amazed at how quickly you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And I'll tell you, folks, you read that text, he's not only amazed, he's flat out angry. He is ticked. Chapter 1, verse 8, look at this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, exclamation point. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Pretty strong language. The Greek word he uses there is anathema, forever destroyed. And Paul includes himself. He says, listen, if I or some angelic being, I don't care how the message comes to you. I don't care how miraculous it looks. If it's not the simple message of faith in Jesus, it's condemning you and those who preach it. So, let me bring this down to application because I am asked this question a lot as a pastor. Pastor, what should I do if I'm going to a church that does not preach the true gospel. What happens if I'm going to a church that does not preach the true gospel? What should I do? They're preaching a gospel of works. I gotta do these rules and regulations. Or it's a social gospel. Now, we all wanna to minister to the poor, but that's, that's all what Christianity is. You're already a Christian. You got baptized as an infant. Don't worry about that. Now it's all about just giving to the poor. As if that's the gospel. We get to heaven, we get, our, our relationship with God is complete by how much we give to the poor. And not that giving to the poor is not important. It is in the Bible. That's why we give almost a million dollars to the Fox Cities, to the poor, the needy, and the neglected. But that's not gonna have nothing to do with our relationship to God and our standing before God. Or or there's churches out there who who tell you, they add on. You have to speak in tongues. You have to do this, you have to do this. You gotta experience this in order to get to heaven. Should our family stay in that church? Here, I'll tell you what my response is. I tell them, first of all, I'm not gonna make that decision for you. You have to make that. Don't be running off and saying, Pastor Episcopo told me I gotta leave the church. It's the same thing with divorce, you know? People wanna get divorced, I'll I'll tell them what the scriptures teach. Don't, that's a decision you gotta make. Even if there's an allowance, you gotta make it. So these are hard decisions, I get that. There's people, there's family, there's relationships. All I can do is tell you what I would do. I'm gonna tell you what I would do. Because of the Bible's warning and how stern it is, I would leave a church that does not teach the true gospel. Any church that teaches a false gospel, a gospel of works, a gospel of of add-ons, I would leave that church especially for my children's sake. Paul says if anybody doesn't present to you the simple gospel of faith in Christ, let them be forever damned. That's a pretty stern warning that I need to listen to. So let me tell you what I told Gaspar. He said to me, Dennis, why would someone leave a great job in New York like that to serve as a pastor? And here's what I told him. I said, Gaspar, 
I first asked him a question. I said, you know how many people there are in the world? He said, six billion. I said, close. 7.5 billion. I said, do you know how many at least recorded, this is according to the Washington Times, how many say that they're born again? No. I said, a very, very small amount. Something like, look, even generous, 92% of the people in this world say they are not born again. Now, let me tell you what Jesus said, and I quoted this verse, John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom. I said, Gaspar, there are two births you have to experience, and every person does. The first is your physical birth when you're born through your mom. The second is a spiritual birth, which only God can do. God has to give you birth through the Holy Spirit. He has to come inside of you and live in you. And Gaspar, that happens when two things happen in your life. First of all, you stop trusting in your obeying the rules try, or your religion. I was baptized. I was confirmed. That gets me in. Your religious works. It's a work. It's just a religious work. None of your good works get you in. It's not about what you do. When you trust that Jesus' death on that cross 2,000 years ago is enough to cover all of your sins, past, present, and future, by faith, you receive that. By faith, you accept it by faith to cover all of your sins. And then secondly, Gaspar, you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You give up control of your life to the one who made you and loves you and saves you. God's answer to that is new birth. That's when you receive the Holy Spirit. And I said to him, Gaspar, you need to be born again. And he said to me, I've never heard that story before. Thank you for telling me that story. So here's the answer to why I serve. And this is what I told him. I said, Gaspar, you know why I left my career to become a pastor, which is the greatest privilege in the world, because every week I get to give this message to thousands of people, is the reason why I left my career to do this to serve is because lots and lots of people need to hear good news. They need to hear good news because what they're listening to is bad news. Most people think the way they get to heaven is by obeying the rules. That's what they were taught by their religion. And so I serve because I want people to hear the good news. Why do you serve in Discovery Land? Why do you help those boys and girls? Because you know those boys and girls, they need to hear good news. Why do you serve students in Greenhouse? Because the students need to hear good news. Why do you do it in women's ministry, men's ministry? Why do you pass out a bulletin? Because however way I can help, I want people to hear good news. And they need it now. They don't need it tomorrow. They don't need it next year. They need it now. Jesus said the day of salvation is today. They don't, you don't know what's going to happen to them tomorrow. That's what you tell people. Why do you serve in that church? Why do you give to that church? Because people need good news. And this place delivers the goods. It tells people good news. Not just at the pulpit, but in, with kids and women, men, so forth. Sports. We just got back from our annual Episcopal vacation at the Jersey Shore. Why don't we go to the Jersey Shore? Well, you know, there's lots of reasons, but you know, bottom line is the ocean. It's beautiful to watch, isn't it? The ocean is just beautiful to watch. 
but it can be very dangerous. In fact, when we were there this past year, they were having some bad storms. You could only go in for half the time, uh, just at your knees. And the lifeguards, they took those poles with the green flags and they put them real close together so they could watch everybody. And as I was watching them do that, I, I flash back to when I was a kid, because when I was a small child, that's not the way it was at the Jersey beaches. They didn't have the flags. They had open beach, and they had lifeguards, as many as they could, every other block. And the lifeguards, though, had a hard time. They had to span the horizon, had to look and see. And occasionally, I can remember this as a kid. There's a swimmer, and they're having difficulty, and they're flapping their wings, and they're screaming, and then someone runs up to a lifeguard, and this, is what would, this was the routine. One of those lifeguards, there were two lifeguards on the stand, one of them would jump off that, life, uh, that stand and dive into the ocean and start swimming to the, to the swimmer who was having difficulty. The other one would get on a, uh, a, a horn or something and alert the other nearby guards that there was a sw swimmer in distress. And they would run and they would get the lifeboats. And so you saw like three lifeboats going out quickly, rowing out to where the swimmer was. And then you saw something very odd. They, they would get close and then the, everybody would kind of like just tread water and you could see they were talking to the swimmer who was like s screaming and wailing their arms trying to calm the swimmer down. They could save the swimmer but not until that swimmer stopped trying to save themselves. When they stopped trying to save themselves they grab onto the swimmer put him in the boat. God can save you but not until you stop trying to save yourself salvation is a gift you don't earn it you don't work for it it is a supernatural work of God in your life that's the gospel that's good news God does the saving as soon as you're ready to give up trying to save yourself any other message is a false gospel. It won't work. You let him take control and he'll save you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we thank you for making it simple for us. We need it simple. And forgive us for complicating what is so simple. I gotta believe, God, that there's somebody here today that you brought to this room that needs to be born again now. This is their divine moment in history. This is the, this is the moment you've opened them up like a Christmas package, just them and you. And this is their opportunity to simply say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying for me. I believe. I be, I'm a believer today. I believe that what you did for me at that cross is enough to cover all the things I'm ashamed of, all the things I'm into now, and all the things I'll do wrong in the future. All, all, you've covered it all in your sacrifice for me. And I receive that personally, not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins. I receive it personally by faith and I apply it to my life. Thank you for dying for me. 
Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I now commit my entire life to you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I don't know exactly what that means, Jesus, but I'm just going to trust that day by day you're going to guide me from now on. You're in the front seat taking the steering wheel. I'm in the back seat. Make me into the kind of man or woman or boy or girl that you've always wanted me to be. I'm yours from this moment on. God, I know that anybody who prays that prayer with sincerity and fullness of heart, you will save. You'll come in, you'll give them your spirit, and they will be born again. Thank you, God, for the gospel, how simple it is. And I pray, God, too, for those of us who know you, that we will serve. We will not stand on the sidelines and let other people do our work. We'll do something in this place, if this is the place you've called us to, so that the good news can be heard and experienced by many, many others. Now may the love of God and the sweet, sweet grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon us as we all leave. And all of God's people said,